Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, independent artists everywhere, welcome back to season two of the podcast. Douglas, nice to see you. You too. Season two. Here we are. We're doing this another year, another season. This is awesome. Yeah. And thanks again to Zap for ponying up for the entire year. So we have some stability there. So I'm super excited to bring independent artists' voices back to the airwaves. We've got lots more stories to tell and a lot of great things lined up this season. So thanks, Zap for being on board with us. We appreciate you. Yeah, we've got an interesting show this week. We talked about having Ben Fry on from the NAIA to talk about that artist survey, and he's here. So, Will, why don't you bring him on? The Independent Artist Podcast is proud to welcome our good friend Benjamin Fry to the show. Uh, ben, welcome. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm excited to be uh, on this podcast. We should intro here that uh, Ben is the chair of NAIA that we've talked a lot about. Is that why he's wearing his crown this morning? Is that why you've, you've got that on? It's. Uh... I forgot my tiara for this. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> Never forget your tiara. <laughs> It's hard. I'm traveling. I'm between shows here and I just didn't pack it. <laughs> well, we appreciate you uh, doing this on the road. It's really good. Everybody's been asking us, when are we going to talk about the survey results? We want to know what everybody had to say about it. Well, yeah, I there there's some very predictable responses. And then there's some some kind of outliers that, that are interesting. I guess that's what we're going to get into the meat of at this point. Uh, yeah, let's jump right into it. Um, the first thing that I noticed is that we're all old. It just sums it up like right there. I'm like, oh, Christ, we are old. Well, yeah, let's look at that section of the survey where we talk about the median age of exhibitors at these shows. Sure. Yeah. Um, so basically about 40 percent of respondents are between 60 and 70 and with a decent contingent of 50 to 60 year olds, basically a very small number of people under that age. Interestingly, that 15 percent of people are between 70 and 80, which is higher than I would have expected for, yeah. for that age group. Do you think that has to do with like the polling in the elections that have happened in the last 10 years where the polling has been skewed because people of a certain generation are more prone to fill out surveys or or do you see something else? I'm not a statistician. I don't play one on TV, but <laughs> but uh, I do I do know that the NAIA has polled every five or 10 years for the last 30 years since we've been in existence and the age has been creeping up, which to me indicates that the data is not bad uh, right. that we have. That is, if it's constantly creeping upwards, it, it seems like we're having a pattern of people. It's not just that recently only old people fill out surveys. It does support my impression at shows. I mean, you walk down the street and we look around and that's who we're seeing exhibiting at the shows is that, that age group. Yeah, the surveys yeah. are one thing, but the eyes don't lie. I mean, we walk around and we see our, our uh, compatriots there, our friends on the street, and, and we are a, an aging group. Yeah, I mean, just take a take an example, like the 30 to 40 year olds. So, so like our data says 5% of people are between 30 and 40 exhibiting at art festivals. Well, if you look down the street, you've got a show of 300 people. That means there's 15 people who are exhibiting who are 30 to 40 years old. I'm not sure that 
an average show with 300 artists is going to have more than that. If, you know, if I walk down the street and I count. We okay. brought that up yesterday at the board meeting, and that is something of concern to the board members. And I think it's going to be of concern to the show directors thinking about this next 10 years, the aging population. That's kind of my big takeaway from the survey, but there's a lot more information in there. And I, I'm scratching my head trying to trying to pull it all apart, Doug. Yeah, you know, Ben, you had mentioned in the meeting the amount of respondents and about how it was a really overwhelming response to the survey so that we can really guarantee that these responses are, are significant yeah. um, in regards to passing on to the shows and everything. We should be pretty close to a well-designed survey with statistical significance. From what I understand, plus or minus, you know, 5% on a survey is pretty significant. It's what it's what you're going to get on most national surveys. I mean, as soon as you're sampling a, a group of people like the, you know, 10,000 artists who exhibit at shows more or less frequently, then we were well within the range of getting to within a few percentage points of, of you know, the correct number for, for the whole population. When I look at the response, you have it kind of broken down by region and, and what percent replied and, and where artists groups tend to be. What did you think of that? Yeah. So when you look at that, we have really predictable data, like 15 percent of people say they're from Florida. <laughs> That's a pretty, <laughs> pretty obvious. I mean, it's not the highest percentage of any state. And that's basically what any artist or any show director knows is intuitively correct. When you get something like 12% say they're in the kind of Southwest and 30% say they're in the upper Midwest and, you know, 15% say they're in the, uh, the kind of mid-Atlantic region, those numbers are actually tighter because you have groupings that are, that are smaller statistical groups. So our survey says that 3% of respondents are from California. Uh, so we're like super heavy in the Midwest and the kind of general South and then Florida with a little bit coming from other places. It kind of makes sense because you look at where we live and where we want to work. It's like I used to say that if you took a 200 mile string and put the pen anywhere on the Mississippi, that's where artists should live, you know, mm -hmm, <laughs> and just totally. swing that thing around. And then that way you can work the show circuit, you know, or you, know, you got this huge chunk of people that just live in, say, Florida um, or, you know, my dumb ass in Santa Fe who has to travel 18 hours to <laughs> get anywhere. <laughs> yeah, like, it's a nightmare. It's a three day uh, drive to anywhere you want to go. It is. Uh, it's it is the land of enchantment. And this is where I'll stay. So. <laughs> I wanted to go into the next section of where we talk about some of these changes that have happened the last couple of years and artists kind of give the opinion of they love it or they hate it. What sure. were some of the reactions that you noticed to these changes? Well, so I I don't think we're going to surprise a lot of artists and we might not surprise many show directors with the data. But like, for instance, we asked, do artists like additional space between displays? And it's like it's an overwhelming, you know, 85 percent say they like it. I mean, I don't, I don't think you all are going to be surprised by that. Right. I certainly wasn't. <laughs> that's uh, been uh, the overwhelming response from like pretty much anybody that's come on the show. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, Stephen King posted in the forum, uh, basically asking artists what show directors can do. And, and like just artist after artist constantly said, please keep the space between displays. I mean, how many times have you gotten to a show and you get six inches between, you, you know, your tent and the neighbor's tent 
and you've got to put your stupid tent up in the middle of this and without knocking over their pottery. Like, I mean, even just regardless of COVID, having a little extra space uh, is good. But I mean, another thing, virtual exhibits, you know, most artists hate it. And everybody knew that that was true. The question about that was in regards to combining with a live event, having a, a virtual component or in place having a virtual component, as opposed to their own type of social media or virtual, like their own website or whatever. This was about a show having a virtual event. Yeah, although we asked it in several ways and we didn't, I mean, it wasn't to hammer home uh, the point to show directors that please don't do virtual events. <laughs> it was it was more that there were a couple of different aspects we wanted to find out, like how artists are actually selling their work. We wanted to find out what artists consider beneficial and what they like, et cetera. So like when we just flat out asked, do you love or hate virtual exhibits? Three quarters of artists said that they hated virtual exhibits. And then when you ask, do you plan to in the future do more or fewer or about the same virtual exhibits just to know that that's a slightly different question. And again, we got a response where like 50% say they're definitely not going to do virtual exhibits in the future. And a few say, well, you know, I'll do about the same, like 30% said, uh, they would do about the same, meaning, I guess, if a, a big art show demanded virtual participation, they would probably still do it. That's the trick for me, because when I answered that one, I was like, well, I can see these shows making us do it. So I see about the same. Do I see it being successful? Mm, I don't know. I've only seen one, maybe two online shows uh, that that actually worked. Yeah. Um and maybe we can look at their models, but that's not that's for maybe another another right. talk. That's a really that that what works for virtual shows is interesting because I personally, of all the various attempts at virtual last year, I had one extremely successful show. Right. But it resembled no other show. It never I mean, even even in normal times it didn't resemble most normal shows, but it's a docent led I don't mind giving those guys a, a shout out. It's the Temple Bethel show. I know the one you're talking Ex about because Exactly. I mean it's I had set up different success <laughs> yeah because it's like every other virtual show yeah huge fundraiser for the temple uh the folks that are supporting it are going to support it no matter what it looks like so uh exactly. hats off to them for making it work and and to that community for making it work the uh the whole the whole temple just always shows up for it just a killer Absolutely. event Another common reaction to people with the virtual events is the ones that were most successful were the ones that aren't a sales directly through the virtual event, but that it directs people to the website so that the artists themselves can use their own e-commerce to sell their work in the way that they like to sell it. Yeah, exactly. And my point, I mean, firstly, I, you know, I didn't, you, you don't create a survey to, <laughs> to get a point across. You create a survey yeah. to get data. Um, but like in, in looking at this data, what I see is repeatedly the, the concept that basically the way artists deal with their collectors best is by direct interaction without the intermediary of some other virtual or, or kind of even an in-person thing. The galleries and dealers, when you look at the, the data for how many artists get sales through other agencies, you know, galleries, dealers, Etsy, uh, virtual art shows, virtual co-ops, et cetera, all of that kind of stuff is pretty low. I mean, most artists heavily depend on either direct sales through art shows or commissions or their own mailing list and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's just much more important to pass through that level of communication from artist to collector. 
Well, I will say when we worked on the survey in NAIA, there were a lot of questions we asked where you were saying, we weren't just trying to get the predictable answers. We threw those questions out because it's like, uh, well, yeah, every artist wants that. So we really want to find those questions that can be of benefit to have a result, to take right. the temperature. Yeah. We, we cut out the, the questions. The, who likes sales? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting because there was one of those questions that I that I did want. I kind of insisted on on throwing a few questions in about the, the qualities or obstacles to uh, to a successful show. I did want to keep in the question about prize money, for instance, or high attendance, because it's interesting, but you don't actually know, like, is high attendance positive or negative to most artists? And there's ways to break this down. I would be interested at some point, we haven't done this yet, but to break down based on average sale point, price point, how they feel that high attendance is for for them as artists, you know, whether artists who have, uh, you know, a lower price point, I mean, you can almost predict the data, but artists who have a lower price point are going to benefit from having a higher attendance. Um, but then there's the question of prize money. Artists consistently have have debated whether prizes are good or bad. There's a whole camp of artists who kind of hate prize money because they feel like it's unfairly separates uh, some artists out from the show. But statistically, I mean, the good from the bad. <laughs> I'm not going to get who's I'm not complaining gonna about prize here. money. The hacks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, but when you look at the forums online, I mean, there was, I remember the AFR forum early on. There was we were doing these surveys about, you know, what what makes a good show. And and there were there's a statistical percentage of people who don't like prizes because they feel it's unfair. Uh, but, you know. I feel like statistically, <laughs> I don't win a prize at every show for sure. I'm far from that. But just knowing that it's there makes me feel better about a show. You know, it, and I think it helps with customers' perspective of shows. And statistically, the survey kind of indicates that. I mean, 90% of artists basically like good prize money at a show. Well, one of the uh, things I noticed about what artists like, and Will, you're in the minority here because you've said many times that you like the kind of show where you kind of set up shop for a long time. Yep. And uh, this, the data shows that artists like these uh, 10 to 5 shows. They like the the limited amount of days. They don't want to kind of dig in and, and be there until 10 o'clock at night. You're going to pay the same amount of money whether you have a four-day show or a two-day show. I like making my expenses before I hit the weekend. So that's that might just be me, but I don't think so. It's interesting though, the data, I mean, is heavily in favor of two-day shows, but like 40% of artists like three-day shows. So you're you're not mm. alone. I mean, they're basically nobody who said they want a four-day show as an ideal. I, <laughs> but the thing is, you cut a day off of Fort Worth and I'm crying. Like I, yeah. I don't want, you know, I love that, like setting up and, and kind of getting into my groove before I hit the, uh, hit the weekend. And it's like, and I meet the people first too. And I kind of shake the rust off and I, I don't know. I feel like it, to me, it's, it's a couple of day show and, and, uh, I don't want them to cut the days, but that's, um, but it's is not that just like me. the Temple Bethel virtual is Fort Worth an unusual circumstance. Hmm. Maybe. Uh, I'm thinking about those four day shows that I do and I love, I'm, I'm thinking about one of a kind and I don't want to cut any of those days cause I know they're not going to cut any of the price off. 
You know, yeah. they're going to, mm-hmm. they're, you know, one of a kind still going to charge me $3,000 for my booth. I, I'd be <laughs> like, okay, I don't want any, an extra day to sell. Okay, asshole, here's $3,000 for a two day show. And it's, <laughs> you know, they're not cutting anything. Yeah, this could turn into a long uh, conversation about the different shows that are longer, but we'll take the flip of what you're saying. Like Ann Arbor has been four days forever and they just went to three days, which has been met with overwhelming great response so i mean there are lots of different takes on that out there because it's hotter than the surface of the sun well there you go for sure (laughs) i know i also think that this get this gets into i mean like if if i i would be deeply disappointed if some show that has a successful model takes our survey and they're like okay we're going to change everything to fit exactly what the naia data yeah i mean most most show directors hopefully know their know their business but I do think this can guide, for instance, you've got those, not the, not the top 10 shows in the country, but you've got the next 150 and somebody's a new director and they're like, well, I don't know, should we keep this? We've always done it this way, but artists are complaining. Hopefully this can provide some guidance. Hey, Ben, a lot of the comments that people on the podcast lately have been are they're talking about bigger size booths and wanting corners, 10 by 15s, 10 by 20s. Was there anything in the survey that gives any data on how, as a whole, the artists feel about the bigger booths? Yeah. So we asked that in a section of like what makes a positive or negative factor in applications or in a show. And we asked both about corner booths and double booths. Basically, the the corner booth thing, it was like 50-50 between not a factor and I love it. The good 50% nearly 50% said that the option to purchase a corner booth uh, was a significant factor, or at least that they love it in a show. I'm wondering if show directors would be interested in reconfiguring the show, maybe dropping the total of artists and increasing different configurations of booth sizes just to see if we could have a different looking show. I think that's interesting, but I don't think you're going to get, I don't know if this was, I can't remember if this was a question on the survey. Nobody really wants to pay for it. You know, upping the cost of uh, that. I think most shows are not quite as um, uh, creative with their funding as say like a Stephen King where our booth fees are like, what did he say? 8% of the total budget. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, but that's not what I'm describing. I'm saying, let's say we've got an exhibitor count of 200. What if they drop the numbers to 175, have a few more double booths or a few more corner booths that people can buy and then you have the same dollar amount coming in the end on the budget, but then the artists who want these different kinds of display spaces can pay for them and be willing and want to pay for them. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with Douglas on that. So Armonk just just came through and asked basically all the artists or many of the artists what they thought of their new layout and how to make uh, layouts work in the future because they were basically reaching this formula of budget plus surface area of the show site. Um, And they needed to basically find a way to make all the artists happy while maximizing the amount of money for the perfectly limited surface area they had. And I talked to Judy about it on the show site. And I said, look, you know, why don't you try basically really giving more corners and premiums to the artists who are willing to pay for that extra surface area that way you can get more money per artist for the artists who are willing to pay for that exposure. Because when you think about the mathematics of it, if you have two separate artists who both 
we now know all the artists want extra space between their booths. If you have two separate artists, that takes up more space than one artist with a double booth. And you can even get basically either the same or more money with fewer artists, which means technically among the artists, you've got a show that has 175 rather than 300 artists or something like that. So you've got somewhat less competition for the same market. I'm going to be the champion for the people that want a 10 by 10 slotted booth that don't need the corner. This to me sounds like you're starting to push, you know, you start to like have all this extra space. All of a sudden the people that just want a regular booth, they're paying more and they're, they, they, they don't want to pay for, for more they, already the booth fees are killing a lot of us and yeah. it crams some people out. So the artists that don't have a big profit margin that are just squeaking by, I'm nervous about those guys. It doesn't seem right. I really am kind of begging shows to keep your budget not so dependent on booth fees. Well, these are all really great points. Uh, ben, can you tell us why did we actually do this entire survey? What is the whole purpose behind taking the temperature of the artists? Well, I mean, quite simply, the NAIA exists to be a point of communication between artists uh, as a group and shows. And we basically can't do that successfully if we don't really know what artists are thinking at any given moment. And despite the fact that we've done five or 10 surveys over the years, it's important to know with new issues, what artists are feeling about their careers, about the things shows are doing at any given time in general. So it's basically to, to work uh, as advocates for artist-friendly policies uh, as we communicate with shows. And we have heard from the show directors that this data does help them, that this does help them making decisions maybe that they wouldn't have thought of, but then also using it as data for the people who are behind the financing and who are you know, writing the checks, that they see what is important to, to us. Too. Yeah, absolutely. And as I've talked to show directors over the years with my role at the NAIA, most show directors say, look, you know, that we have lots of stakeholders. We have city councils, we have the mayor, we have advertisers, we have boards of directors. Many of them have no clue what an artist does or thinks. And so even as a show director who really takes the artist's perspective and needs into consideration, they may be up against three or four different brick walls when trying to do something that would be good for the artists. Having something concrete like a national arts organization such as the NAIA with concrete data that is statistically valid that they can then take in you know some form to their board of directors to their advertisers and say look i know you want to put the giant prize pinwheel with the bells and whistles next to the artists and stick all the porta potties in front of their booths but you can't do this because artists hate it having something like a survey that says artists benefit from this policy artists dislike this policy and they state that they will not apply to your show if a show director goes to the board and says yeah. artists are stating 75 percent of artists say if we do this they will not apply to our show that will that will that's the people. key right there to know what is the deal breaker we need to know what the deal breakers exactly. are exactly and that gives show directors who are trying to make the best show possible for artists some ammunition to bring to the other stakeholders because there's a lot of loud stakeholders in the room and the artists no matter how much we talk about things in person at the show to show directors and staff, we aren't actually a very visible stakeholder when the shows are making decisions uh, for 48 weeks of the year. 
And that's what I love about the NAIA, you know, the fact that we are a louder voice together. And uh, I like the survey and I like putting it together and, um, you know, just having our voice heard a little bit more as opposed to us just being a little whiny 10 foot by 10 foot square for a show. We're a bigger force and people actually are are hopefully going to listen. I know there are quite a few folks out there that do. Yeah, and we're an entire industry. It's not just like, you know, we're all a bunch of individuals. We're an industry that makes money for communities and organizations uh, just by having bodies show up to come see our work and buy our work. So it needs to be a symbiotic thing where where the events are successful for everybody who's involved in them. Absolutely. So all of this information can be found on the NAIA website if you want to break down a lot more of the data points and look into some of the answers. Everything from price range of work to where a lot of the folks live. It's an interesting map. Um, You can find that information at NAIAartists.org. Did I get that right, Ben? Yes, you did. We also (laughs) ask you to become a member of the NAIA and let your voices be heard. Uh, We are only as loud as our numbers. So please, folks, uh, continue to contribute to NIA. Ben, are we still doing free membership there? Yes, we are. And uh, you can find that information on the main menu for the NAIA artists website. And all of the Links can be found in the main menu to that website to both the survey and to join. And joining is a good way to get your name and your email into the database so that whenever there are new advocacies, you can be known about it. But you can also jump in and volunteer, make yourself known what you would be interested in doing and how you could be a part of the NAIA and volunteer your services if you are so inclined. Thanks, Ben, for joining us today. And thanks for everything that you've done for the NAIA for as long as you've been involved. You've been very active. You've led the ship. And we really appreciate your leadership. We do, Ben. Thank you so much. We've been wanting to have you on here for a while. And uh, we'll have you on for an extended time some other time. I want to sit down and get inside that head of yours and talk sales (laughs) and, and pick apart some of your history. So we'll get you on in another episode. But thanks for sitting down with us this this morning here. Hey. Thanks for having me, guys. And it's an honor to be on the podcast. I'm excited about what you do. All right. Thanks, man. Whee! So it was a great talk with Ben. I appreciate him sitting down and talking to us to start the show. Uh, we've got an exciting interview, though, this week. Uh-huh. I'm excited for you to hear what Cindy has to say with Doug. This is like the Oprah-iest interview we've had yet. It's a really cool sit down. She was really giving of her information, sharing of the kind of the vulnerabilities involved in, you know, years of having another another business going. And then that moment where she decides to make a change. So I don't want to give it all away, but let's uh, jump into her story. This is Cindy Olms, mixed media painter from Cincinnati, Ohio. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. Great news around here. Zapplication signed on for a full year with us as a sponsor. You know, Douglas, when we took this podcast on, it started out as a replacement for the NAIA's newsletter and quickly morphed into something else. It did. It turned into a place for us to share our voices as professional working artists. This project was a pretty small potatoes kind of thing. And as it has grown, it has grown some serious expenses. So thank you to Zap for helping us take a lot of those on and get these voices heard. Thanks, Zap, for your support of our show and the support to the artist community. 
Well, Cindy, welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today. Well, I guess I could say the same to you. You're taking your time to educate the audience, and I appreciate that. Oh, that's really nice. I first started seeing your work earlier this year, and it seems like we are on the exact same schedule, uh, yeah. running on the same circles all summer on, and yes, into the fall. I think you were at La Quinta as well. I was, yep. Yeah, and yeah. I've been enamored with your work since I first saw it. And I'm also impressed with the amount of recognition you've been getting for your great work. So congratulations. Thank you. It's surprising. I guess the first thing I want to bring up when talking to you about your work is just that I know that it was not a straight line course for you to get to where you are right now on the street selling your work that you're actually new to the art fair circuit. Yeah, um, really 2018, I was sort of dabbling. And then 2019, I was booking shows and starting to have good experiences. And then COVID hit. And there was just this big pause in the middle of what I was beginning and so excited to do. Um, and, right. and at the time, it was it was just so like somebody was holding my breath underwater and I needed to breathe and I couldn't get to the surface. But really looking back at it now, uh, not that COVID was a good thing. It was a horrible thing and still a horrible thing. But I really needed that year to bring the body of work to a more realized state. And I I really took that year. I, I didn't take a day off. I was in my studio every single day. I was just, I I was in the zone and I was cranking the workout. Where COVID interrupted you was at that upward trajectory, that enthusiasm that I'm getting ready to go do this. The ideas are just flowing. And for some people who have expressed this COVID interruption, they were kind of at a period of doing this for quite a while, following a, a bit of a formula. And then when that rug was pulled out from under them, the inspiration to keep coming up with new ideas or that interaction with the the audience was gone. So that stifled them. But you were on the other side of that. You were like Mm -hmm. up, up, up. Yep, that's true. And I talked to um, a, a few of my friends, exactly what you said, that had been in the industry for years. And I said, oh, my gosh, you must be really cranking out the work. And they were like, no, I'm like playing golf and doing all the things that they can't do when they're traveling on the road all the time to shows. Right. Finding that other that other side, that balance of of like, well, I've kind of been ignoring the personal side of our lives. And that's what we kind of got into then where we're like, well, now I have the time to to golf or or go for bike rides or go to movies and watch the things that really give me inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I was a kid with a new toy, and I just wanted to play with my new toy every chance I got. And at the same time, actually, in May of 2020, we -hmm. had been working on building a studio uh, for me across the driveway from our house. So in May of 2020, that studio was done, and it was like brand new 
this gorgeous space. And so I also didn't want to be anywhere else, but in my brand new building. (laughs) Wow. That is just sounds like, yeah, like your creative place, your happy place. And yeah, yeah. Brand new building, brand new body of work, just a a brand new experience. So you did, you did, you did not mind being secluded because you were with your work and with your thoughts and with your creativity. And it was great. It was great. I I loved every minute of it. I had built up a tremendous body of work when the show started this year. And yet I've continued to work seven days a week. I work every single day and some 10 to 12 hour days trying to keep up with the demand because people weren't allowed to buy art or go to art shows for a year. And they had a lot of... (laughs) pent-up spending frustration, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm, definitely. Which was good good for us artists. That was great. That is great. We hope that continues on. I mean, you know, one of the worries is that bubble. And yeah. what does the future hold? Nobody knows. I mean, now we're talking, are there going to be more shutdowns? So yeah, no, we don't even want to go down that conversation. But yeah, that people, the future is uh, always uncertain. The, it's become that, you know, I, I think we all took our freedom for granted and we're we're seeing that that's just not a given. Mm, right. Well, tell me about the pre-2018. What kind of led up to this shift? Well, um, I had had a frame shop. Well, I graduated in 90 with a Bachelor's of Fine Arts. Okay. And I used to say, I'm a secretary with an art degree who can't type. Mm. I felt like I was completely unmarketable. And I wasn't sure what to do. But when I was in school, uh, a sort of strange thing happened in that there was a building next to the school that was being constructed. And in the summer before the entire building was finished, the property management team had this wonderful retail space that they weren't ready to rent out. And But they said, if you art students want to open up a gallery for the summer, Uh, you know, go ahead and do it in this space. And I was one of a handful of artists that decided that we we wanted to take them up on that offer. And and it turned out that the gallery existed there for about a year and a half. Through my graduation from art school, there were about 20 of us that were really committed to this and we wanted it to continue. So we started another gallery up the street around the corner in a in a less expensive rental space. And we ran that for probably, I guess, close to three years. And at that point, I was like doing all their book work and hanging all the shows and typing all, I was doing a lot of stuff. I was, I had just slowly learned sort of how to manage a business Mm -hmm. through this, this experience. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, why don't I just do this for myself? Okay. So I ended up opening my own gallery in a a really kind of a a ho-dunk neighborhood. And, but I knew the the guy that had the building and he wanted to bring a little bit of art into the neighborhood and some diversity. He was the mayor at the time and he just wanted some different kinds of business there. So I rented this building from him and The funny part is, okay, I open up a visual business, an art gallery, in a building that didn't have a single window. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no natural light, nothing. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, there's a lot of things like that. As we progress on, we take the next step towards something. And then we kind of have that learning curve, you know, so you yeah. thought, well, yeah, this is a great space. This is a great opportunity. This is where I'll do the next thing of my vision. And then there were still tweaks within that that needed to be made. You know, it's weird, though, because I didn't I didn't think it was a great space or a great opportunity. It was just that I had an art degree and I really wanted to somehow be working in the industry. And I just didn't know what else to do. It was really for a lack of no other choice mm -hmm. and not being really willing to go out there and find a better choice. I just said, okay, I'll just do this. Okay. And, and I didn't, I offered custom framing, which I didn't know that much about. So I had to learn how to do that. And I, and I ended up moving out of that building and into the building next door, which did have windows. <laughs> <laughs> and I downsized instead of it being a gallery where I represented other artists. It was really a frame shop, but it, there was a, a small uh, space, the front part of the building that also showcased my work, mm -hmm. of which there was not a whole lot because I was mostly framing because that mm -hmm. was that's just an income that you can count on. So it sounds like uh, kind of slowly but surely the the goal of selling your work as an independent professional artist started taking a step away from that and towards a more business-minded, routine yes. kind of income that would be stable. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yet, you know, I wasn't frustrated by that really because um, I really enjoyed the custom framing. Mm -hmm. It's also an artistic outlet and, and mm -hmm. creative and you're working with colors and putting things together. And, and I still feel to this day that the frame is it's the finishing touch of the artwork. Yeah. It's yeah. something that should be considered. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed it. Well, there's an aspect of being an artist that is entrepreneurial. And a lot of us are attracted to this business, not just for the creativity aspect and making things but it is being our own bosses, making our own decisions, not answering to anybody else. That yeah. that is a choice that is attractive to the way of life that we want to live. I have so much respect for the artists in this industry. I mean, exactly what you said, being self-disciplined and self-motivated and self-regulated. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of my biggest struggles when I opened the gallery um, because I, I had always worked for someone else in a group setting where mm. it, everything was laid out for you and to work just for yourself and on your own. I really struggled the first couple of years. And then I had a friend who sat me down and said, I want you simple task every day to write down at the end of the day, what you did that day and what that related to monetarily. What did oh. you generate monetarily in that day? Okay. And that really changed my discipline. Okay, so it gives you more of a of a razor focus on what is propelling you tangibly forward towards the business as opposed yeah. to kind of like spinning your wheels. Well, you know, you think about if you know what your your expenses and your overhead and your rent, if you know what all of that is. Yeah. You can break it down to what you need to be generating every day to make a living and stay in business. I did that for about two or three years. 
mm-hmm. religiously. And then I was kind of done with it. I mean, I was, I knew that when I went in in the morning, I was going to work all day. Then it was a skill. It was a technique that, that got you focused on, on self-motivation and discipline. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm so amazed at artists that do this for a living because every one of us, we've had to learn that on our own. Yeah. That not through having a boss or, or other workers, but on your own to be self-motivated, self-disciplined. And on top of that, you've got to be creative. You right. know, it's not all laid out for you. You have to reinvent a new wheel every day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just amazing. And, and that's nothing compared to, then you have to schlep this stuff across country, yeah. you know, and you have to set up in every kind of weather condition. <laughs> well, it's a good point that you make that I hadn't considered. Uh, it's making me become self-reflective about that. And where do I find the motivation? And I think for a long time, the way I've run my business since we started this almost 30 years is I think that there was a bit of fear regarding what if I'm not keeping busy enough? What if I'm not committed to enough things that generate revenue? So I generally would overcommit myself. And then the motivation to work is just the pile that's in front of you that has to get accomplished. Mm. And my my shift and my challenge since we've come back from COVID, since we had that long break, is being intentional about, well, how can I come back to this and make a plan and say, I don't need to overcommit. I need to make sure I commit to myself enough. And then I can shift things a bit so that there's a quality of life that isn't such like a, you know, like we're running a race or on a total treadmill or a hamster wheel that people talk the about. The hamster wheel. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's happening um, to so many people. They took that year of COVID to reassess how they're spending their time. Yeah. Right. So, you know, after a period of time for you being... Um, in the frame shop and working your business, you came to this realization that you were done with that. Yeah. You know, I have to say probably the last two, three years I was framing, I felt the frustration, um, you know, almost like an, a little bit like I'm an animal in a cage, like I'm mm. trapped here okay. um, instead of loving to going to work every day. There had been a shift and yet it just seemed like an impossible decision to to close the business. I mean, mm. it, it, it was the frame shop was my baby. Mm-hmm. It was the baby that never grew up and was never mm. going to stop needing me. And at some point, I, I think I wanted the baby to go away to college or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right that's a really good point. Right. <laughs> And yet, I mean, I loved the baby, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I really did. And I I felt like I would be betraying it to even consider it. But then it really just sort of reached a point where instead of trying to figure out all the reasons why I could or I couldn't or how it would work if I did or if I didn't, I just decided to make a decision. Yeah. And. And that that's so much of what I think holds people back is they're trying to figure out all the little minutiae of mm. 
of the decision when they just need to make the decision. And then things will fall into place. When I started custom framing, I didn't know how to custom frame. I didn't Mm -hmm. know how to run a business. And what I figured out right away was that I should never look up. Just take the step, then you take the next step, then you take another step. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you've walked down the road. Right. Well, that served as an example to you that, well, I've done it in this aspect, so I can apply the same skill walking into a new way of selling my work. I don't have to know everything about it. I just need to take the next step and then continue to take the next step. And you Mm -hmm. would have confidence in the fact that you'd just figure it out like you figured out the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I wish that I'd had that clear vision. But, you know, it it was really I was walking my dog. It was a Tuesday morning. And and literally I felt I felt myself walk out of myself because I was milling it over in my brain. How am I going to do this? How could I possibly consider doing this? And then all of a sudden it was like I saw myself. She was walking down the road in front of me and she was done. Mm. She had made a decision and I just needed to follow her lead. So I came home. It was a Tuesday morning and my husband was working from home that day. And I said, do you mind if I close my shop. I would just want to be an artist. And he he gave the perfect husband answer, if it makes you happy. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. I did. And I say that, you know, that was a Tuesday morning. And by Sunday evening, we sent out a mass email that said effective immediately. I no longer frame. Wow. I mean, it seems abrupt, like you say, on a Tuesday and then on a Sunday. But you sound like you had two years of really needing to come to terms with that before it could settle in and be like, I don't have to have reasons X, Y, and Z. I can just make the decision and it's okay that I'm done with this now. And it's okay that I'm done with this. Yeah. 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 It's like it served its purpose and it does not negate its value in your life or its emotional connection or like it meant it wasn't what you were supposed to be doing, it would just meant now it was time to move on to the next thing. You know, time to make a change. And I think it's one of the things that I struggle with. You know, change, uh, it scares me, it upsets me. Our neighbor Mm. moved out recently and I just keep thinking, how could he do that? How could he change his life like that and just leave us? (laughs) (laughs) How dare he? (laughs) How dare he? (laughs) And I wasn't I wasn't ready. I needed I, I needed a ready. couple of years to yeah, think about this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it happened too quickly for me. <laughs> well, I, I do think that this roadshow artist kind of career, it can be a place where people are okay with being a bit spontaneous. You know, it's it's not the yeah. kind of lifestyle for people who are like, they have to plan it and say, this is what I'm going to do here and here and here and here. We kind of mm-hmm. have are more reactionary to what's happening, and then we adjust. And so mm-hmm. I would think that setting up your life in a way that is kind of plan, you could plan about what your business was going to be like there. And then to leap into the complete unknown, it had to take some time for it to sink in and adjust for you. Well, even now, you know, I can't tell you how many times 
when I first started doing art shows, because I did dabble in before I made the big jump in 2018, I had done outdoor art shows. I do one here or one there whenever I could fit it into my schedule. Um, But I remember every time I would do one, I would think I am never doing this again. Oh, it just seemed so crazy and setting up the booth and you might be in the rain. And I Mm. I would just think, I I can't believe people do this. Um, Driving a van across country. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't relate to it. And yet every time after the show would end, you, it's almost like labor. Then you forget that it hurt. Yeah. Oh yeah. (sighs) I think about the, um, about the application amnesia that happens sometimes when we go to just go through and apply for a show. We're like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I didn't do so well with that one or this one or whatever, but I'm just going through the motions of doing my applications because that's what you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know what you're talking about, about that labor. Uh, You forget about it. When my wife was going into labor with the second, her eyes opened up as wide as they could in my face. And she goes, I can't believe this is happening to me again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's so true. But, you know, that's how we survive as a species. We forget. Yeah, there you go. Well, so tell me about those first art fairs. And then you said that the first reactions were like, this isn't for me. But then how did you actually decide to make that leap into the art fair world? Well, once I gave up the frame shop, my thought was, and this is kind of funny, was that this will be easy. I'll just be an artist. Mm -hmm. And I'll do some a show or two here or there. And and now I realize, I mean, I've worked a thousand times harder at this than I ever did at framing. Right. Because you've now you're taking on two or three full-time jobs, the full-time job of creating, the full-time job of selling, the full-time job of marketing, the accounting. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. Now I'm in, I'm in chronic labor all the time. <laughs> but but you're like you're, you said you're feeling joy every day. So this is oh, yeah. this is like the trade-off. It's the the tasks of a joyful life versus the feeling like you can't do this another second longer. Whatever that life would have, you know what I mean. Whatever yeah. the other tasks we commit ourselves to. No, I mean, and I, I feel like I feel like I am really, for the first time, I'm fully awake. I'm oh. fully alive. I'm fully present. What what this career asks of me is everything I want to do and be and give. Wow, that I mean, that's got to be an amazing feeling right there. It is. It is. I mean, I, I've, I think the first year that I was doing this full time, I just kept saying, I'm awake. I'm awake now. I'm awake. (laughs) (laughs) Although sometimes not in the best way. I remember I did the, I think it was, was 2019. I did Dogwood show and this pop-up, horrible pop-up storm happened Mm -hmm. as we were in the midst of teardown and no one knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. All of my work was on the ground behind my booth. I was taking Mm -hmm. it all down and I was taking the tent down when it happened. And I was just in shock. And my neighbor 
you know, someone who's probably young enough to be my daughter, mm -hmm. uh, ran up to me, grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me and said, you have to move. <laughs> because I just, I just like, I was unprepared. I didn't know what to do. She's like, do you have tarps? And I go, uh-huh. She right. goes, we need to cover your artwork now. <laughs> wow. Right. And yeah, I mean, that's just it. I mean, this this business creates a community where we we are there for each other. And she looked over and she saw that you weren't having that, that yes. dig in and do what we all need to do. And she's like, she couldn't stand to see everything oh. that you had back behind your booth destroyed so she yeah. she you know let you know what to do i mean we all help each other so here. generous so generous and that is exactly I, I found the artists at these shows to be so generous and so kind and so willing to walk over and not in a demeaning way but just walk over and say hey let me show you how to roll up your tent sides uh, right <laughs> there's actually a trick if you're alone yeah. You can't roll it up. You, you know, you have to fold them in. And then I didn't know any of this. So uh, people are constantly helping me. Well, now my husband travels with me a lot. So that's not so bad. There are two of us. But when I was trying to do it alone, uh -huh. uh, you know, it was a real challenge. Well, would you say that I, we talked a little bit earlier this week, uh, getting ready for this uh, episode, you had said that your friendship with Dana Shavin, you met her at an art show and you became just great friends. And that kind of led you down yeah. the road to some really good mentorship. Yes. Well, yes. Dana and I uh, met at, at an art show and we were we were instantly like uh, we must have been sisters in a previous life or something. <laughs> so I was we were both smitten and still are yeah. with each other. And and then she had this husband, Daryl. Yes. Um, who I didn't pay much attention to. Daryl Thetford has become a bit of a rock star on this podcast. I think just about everybody mentions how he has helped them along the way. So oh it's gosh. gonna turn into six degrees of separation yeah. with Daryl Thetford. <laughs> it, it's um it I think so because you know what? Here's the thing, he is the most giving. I know that his career is busier than mine. Mm -hmm. But I text him, not as much now, but at first, mm -hmm. and, and I would say, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm sorry to bother you. And every time he would say, you're not bothering me at all. Wow. He's, he has been so completely generous. And without him, I would not be in the right shows. I mean, he is constantly, constantly telling me to do things that make me uncomfortable. Oh, what's an example of one of the uncomfortable things you're talking oh, about? Uh, drive across the country or figure out how. Mm. I mean, if it were up to me, I would only be doing shows that were, you know, within probably five hour drive of myself. Okay. The first time I got into La Quinta, I applied only because he said, apply to this show. It's good. As uncomfortable as I was, I was also so appreciative that someone would would give so generously of their time that I thought, whatever he tells me to do, I'm really going to try to do it. Yeah. And I, I really pretty much have. Mm -hmm. um, he has created many levels of discomfort for me. <laughs> mm. I think it's interesting because when I first started in this, in this business, um, and I came to it with my own sense of, well, what will people buy? Who's out there? What's kind of that 
spending threshold and I don't come from wealthy background. And so I'm like, well, who who would spend $500 on a piece of glass or who would spend whatever? Not even aware of who's out there and what people are collecting. Mm -hmm. Like I Mm -hmm. did a show around the holidays when we first started and I had this in my mind that it was a gift show and I needed to make everything in gift price ranges. And I show up with things that are under $50. And the neighbor that I had next to me, they had expensive work. I mean, very expensive work. And I said, I thought this was more like a gift show. And they said, it is a gift show. And she said, there's all levels of gift giving. Rich people give gifts too. Their gifts might be a thousand dollars or up, but yep, they give gifts too. And it really shifted my my mindset of who is our audience, who is collecting, like, what do they want Mm -hmm. from us? Do they want low price, same that they could get anywhere Mm -hmm. down the street or in a, in a store? Sure. It's our goal to shoot for the fences. And if you're at a nice show, these people are probably living in a big house. A couple of them for that matter. A couple of them. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Well, we've had to deliver some pieces to homes um, now that I'm working bigger. Yeah. And I and I I'm shocked at how the other half lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These are some nice places. For sure. <laughs> well, let's talk about your work. I mean, how how did your work evolve from when you first um, were showing it at art fairs and where you are now? Well, I've always been since college. I realized in college that I was a figure painter. That's just my just my first and really only true love. Mm. So I was always working with this singular female format image. But within that, I've almost, I don't know if it's part of being ADD, but I would do the figure for a couple of years and then I do still lifes for a year or two. And then I would do uh, them in different mediums. Well, I'll do it pastel. And now I'm going to do it in, uh, I did do paper collage, not at all in the way that I'm doing it now, but Mm -hmm. I I did that. I did. I even had a little foray into briefly into landscape pastels, okay. which I totally enjoyed, even though I'm a terrible landscape artist. Mm. I used a lot of fun colors, so I kind of cheated in that way. Okay. But let's see, when I was doing shows sort of part time, I did a, a palette knife uh, floral series mm. and still life series. And I would just kind of mix it up because I really, really did not understand having a cohesive body of work. I would mm-hmm. show up to these art fairs with, I got a little bit of this and I did a little bit of that. And um, Kind of like wanting to have, like thinking of it as a retail situation where you're trying to have something for different tastes. Y- yes, and, but then also because that's just sort of how I worked. I was very mm. sporadic. I was doing this and then I was doing that. And mm. my focus would only stay on something for a certain amount of time before I would jump ship and do something else. And when I started doing this figurative series and it, and it was being well received, mm-hmm. my husband said, please, please, I beg of you, do not switch gears oh. and you know <laughs> let's just stick with this for a little bit <laughs> yes well it, every piece is so different yet it is a cohesive body so tell me how do you from each piece 
have its own unique vision and voice and all of that stuff? Boy, you know, I, I wish I knew. I think a big part of it is the decision of what paper you're going to use because the the paper is the star of the show. The paper, depending on what you choose to use for the face or for the background is going to, to a large part dictate the way the rest of the piece goes. So you you make a decision. um, Like for example, I did one piece where I made the decision to paint the face on top of a a crazy orange and black and green marble paper. Okay. And yet my idea for the piece was that she was sort of this a quiet, uh, you know, she had this like sort of normal everyday outfit on, but she had this crazy face because you can't, you can't paint on top of paper that has this, these wild black lines going through it and make something that's subdued. Okay. So it, took me a while and many, many, many revisions to realize that I I had that first choice that I made had to dictate all the rest of the choices I made. And she ended up being one of my strongest pieces. I work with, with women of all different ethnic origins. And every piece starts with a very realized drawing. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I'm laying that line drawing out on the canvas, I have to know exactly where the papers are going. So obviously, if I'm working with an Asian image, I'm going to use papers that reflect an Asian motif Mm -hmm. um, for the most part. But I'm taking big sheets of paper and I'm cutting, tearing, reassembling them, recreating a figure, a new figure out of many, many, many different pieces of different paper. Okay. Is the entire the entire piece covered in the different papers and then the paint goes on top of that? Exactly. The entire surface of the canvas is always first covered with paper. And then the features are painted on top of that paper. One of the things I'm taken by with what you're describing is it really feels to me like when I look at your pieces that the color and the texture in these papers are reflecting an internal kind of place where your your subjects are. And depending on how you piece things together, even if they have a neutral expression on their face, it seems to let me know what's going on inside their, their inner dialogue. Yeah, you know, it, it it's really great to walk around with, with the patrons at the show because Many times I have an idea in my head and then I talk to them and and then I go, oh, yeah, uh, and there's that, too. (laughs) And, oh, yeah, it's probably really about that, too. So it's it's sort of an ongoing. I think I'm the more I work on them and the more I talk about them with other people, the more I actually begin to see. Because it's weird when you're working on a piece, you're you're in it in a strange way it's a silent dialogue because you're not having it out loud or verbally it's just a it's a feeling i have a feeling when i'm working on a piece but i don't i'm not t- trying to define it by words and when i take them to shows and i have to talk about them and other people want to talk about them then they really become much clearer even to me about what they're about and one of the things I discovered this year being 
under the tent with them. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to say that this is a surprise to me, but it, it is. They're all really strong women. Mm-hmm. And I believe they're all what I'd love to be. The things I love, the things that maybe I think I don't, qualities I don't have in me, but I want them, I want them to be thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And I, I want them to be strong. And I think that when I stand there in the booth and I look around at them all, I go, yeah. And I had a customer a couple of years ago ask me the best question ever. Okay. She said, how do you know when a piece is done? And I said, when I know her, mm. when I have that moment where I step back from the easel and I go, I know you. Mm. And if I don't ever get that, then she's not done. She's not right. So are these women aspects of you? I see it as more of what I'd wish to be or I admire or what I've seen in women that I've known or been exposed to. I think that women have a really unique strength. It's different than a male strength in that a woman has learned over different cultures and centuries to be strong in a quiet way. And I, I think that really intrigues me that I look at them and they're, I feel like they're not being loud about it. They're not being obnoxious. It's just there. And I think that that's what women are. I mean, uh, they, now I've never had children of my own, but being a mother, raising children, you're, you're creating the future generation. Women are just amazing. They have an amazing strength. Do you think this quiet strength you're talking about is a societal norm that gets put upon them or how they have been able to throughout the years exist? I think it's sort of both. Hmm. I mean, that's how society, that's where society has sort of placed us. And I'm certain we, I know that we are breaking out of that and have broken out of that. And whether we do or not, I don't think it's a downside. I think it's a really unique, amazing quality. We can be both. And I value and Mm. respect both. Well, there is definitely an aspect of your work here that has a very traditional kind of feel to it being portraiture. You're figures are dressed in somewhat historical type outfits. And yet what you bring to it is a very contemporary eye and a vibrancy and a color and a real current feel. So, I mean, is that something that was intentional to have it be kind of like a throughout the ages kind of a feel? Um, yeah, I, I think so. You know, I was your traditional, uh, painter. I was just working in oils doing figures before Mm. I made the switch. It was definitely a decision. Like, what can I do to make this body of work more current Mm -hmm. to, to make it feel more current? Because I think my, my nature is, and I did portrait work for several years. So my nature is to always go to, something that has a traditional realism about it. And yet I find that to be boring, not as stimulating. And I, I, I thought there has to be another way for me to be true to myself, 
but be more interesting about mm. it. So that's the decision to incorporate the paper was almost in a strange way, like giving myself a handicap. You know, like I used to mm. work sometimes with my left hand okay. because then I couldn't draw the figure accurately because I didn't want to. And what I've learned with the paper is to simplify. I have to reinterpret. I'm not going to draw and paint every fold of the outfit she's wearing. In most all of my pieces, the figure is covered in a, a simplistic patterning or it's it's almost shrouded. You see the hands, yeah. you see the face, you don't see a body. None of my women have breasts that you can see or are voluptuous or have... It's not about the physical. There's not an ob objectification about them. They're beautiful, but it's almost like what you said, the sensitivity and the strength is what shines through. Well, I, I hope that's that's what people see. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember thinking when I started this series, these pieces are not going to be my commentary on whether or not I can get the anatomy right or the proportions oh. correct, or it, it's going to be about something else. It's an interpretation. You know, it's the the less said, the more interesting it is. Well, yeah, and it does definitely make you look at the face, look at the environment and think, what's this woman's story? Is she a queen? Is she, you know, a common person? <laughs> is is, mm -hmm. is she a mother? Mm -hmm. Is she lonely? Is she got a lot on her mind? I mean, is she angry? What's going on? You can sit and you can just, <laughs> you really sit and talk through what's going on with, with these pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know, I remember that was one of the things that Daryl Thetford said to me, uh, after one of my shows where I didn't do so well, he sat me down. And he said, "Okay, what did you what did you do wrong?" So he wanted me to tell him what do I say to people when they come in my booth. And it, at some point, he stopped me and he said, "You know what?" He said, "People don't want to know how you made it as much as they want to know why you made it." Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really sound advice. I just was caught up on the well. I do this and then I do that and then I lay paper and then I. And there, and the, and yet the the body of work has a very strong spiritual quality to it, and I wasn't talking about that. Well, well, tell us about that. So, what is the spiritual component that you're talking about? There are a lot of layers to my work. Embellishments go back and forth. There's paper, then there's paint, then there's stencil, then there's paper again. There is a lot of layering. It represents for me the layering of who we are. Mm. That that we are the consequence of all of our years of life experience that's built up and layered upon us over time. And that's what creates a, a person slowly, all these experiences that they've had. Your work also, to me, almost feels like across lifetimes, but it does almost feel like it's it's the same woman only in this is her lifetime in China, or this is her lifetime here or there. I mean, does that play into it? Is that kind of part of your beliefs or your spiritual that goes into it? I I, I don't think that it's of it as the same woman over time. Uh, you know what? I'll be honest. I A lot of it, I understand the reference to history because uh, a lot of the, the outfits they're wearing seem very historical. Mm -hmm. 
in my research, I'm I am really merely just looking for outfits, and that may be a bad word, but that feel powerful. And a lot of those outfits are historical. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we don't walk around nowadays in Elizabethan costumes. No, right. And uh, although I can see, because I really still feel like I'm even just getting started on this body of work. It's not that I'm not interested in the current women. I definitely am. And I, you will see more of those images, I think, as I, as I go along. I have a couple that have been extremely popular that are, are current images. So I haven't discounted that. But my bigger pieces seem to call for a bigger presence, a bigger outfit. A, and, and I see a lot of that in history. Mm. Um, feminist issues, women's roles, is that an intention behind yourself or your work, or is that just a side thing? Is that just what other people bring to it? You you know, I mean, it's definitely there. I can't say that I, I'm sitting here saying, I need my next piece to be about women's rights. I am certainly aware of what's been happening in the news and I and I understand that this really is kind of the time of the woman. Yeah. You know, we're we're sort of standing up and, and saying, hey, you know, we're equal. We really, really are equal. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of that and I'm happy to be in the arena with that. But I also wouldn't say I'm not a, a woman's liber who wants to stand up on the podium and shout women's rights. You're not trying to say in your work about a political or a a social rights kind of advocacy. Your mm-hmm. work is mm-hmm. reflective of shining a light on women and shining a light on their strength and their sensitivity and who they are through time mm-hmm. and your vision of that. And it kind of meets the moment where there is a celebration of women's roles mm-hmm. throughout time. And it mm-hmm. is kind of like right at that perfect point. It kind of is. And yet, I mean, I was making, I've been drawing and, and painting the female uh, figure for over 30 years. So mm-hmm. I didn't like jump on the wagon. I have been on the wagon for a long time. And just the fact that it's just all that I I want to paint and draw. The female figure is just, and I, I couldn't tell you why. It's just the only thing that interests me. Yeah. Well, I think I I come to this topic being a little more aware than other people who fit my demographic, a 50-year-old white guy, because I grew up <laughs> the son of a single mother who struggled. And in the 1970s and 1980s, there weren't other families in our neck of the woods who came from a divorced family. And I saw the kind of struggle that she had to do in order to put food on the table. And she had to work three times as hard for less money to support a Mm -hmm. family. And then when I went off to college, which kind of is interesting to me, your your analogy of hoping your business was ready to go off to college, um, (laughs) that's when she was able to make a shift and pursue her higher education and start her career. Oh, wow. And I've always admired that because, you know, she's in her 40s, maybe getting close to her 50s. And she could have just been like, okay, well, the second half of my life is going to be about just 
getting to retirement, but instead she thought, yeah, I've right. got life to live and I've got stuff I want to do. And if I don't make that shift now, it's just not going to happen. So it's time for me to to put myself forward since my children don't need me to do that for them anymore. That's amazing. That's amazing. And you know what? That That's a woman because what did she do when when you were little? She did whatever her child needed. Mm -hmm. You came first. Right. I mean, that's an amazing quality that uh, so many women have and, and yet didn't forget herself. Right. She didn't just like leave, leave it behind. I'm sure it was a struggle to come to that realization of, okay, now I'm going to put myself into debt to get a college education, to, to start a career that most people would have started, you know, 20 years sooner. How scary. It is. And, yeah. But I think about that when you told me the story about you walking your dog and you kind of had that same moment too, where it had been rattling around your brain for quite a while, the time for it to really sink in that there were no other choices. You really needed to, to mm -hmm. do your work and to do it in the way that you'd been wanting to do it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it was scary, but it was also freedom. Mm. It was a liberation from also from that sense that you always have to make the right decision, the one that, that I don't know, that makes sense to everyone else. Well, that's maybe part of this, this talk is understanding too, that women have their roles were often subjugated to what everyone else would have consensus on. And all the time. Yeah. 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 And just being able to say, I want to do this because I want to, not because you're a man or a mm -hmm. woman. Your decision is based on what you as a person want to do. Yeah. Well, you know, when I graduated from high school, my um, parents and I and I and I got some, you know, like most talented senior or something mm. at, when I graduated. But so, uh, you know, it, it was kind of known that I was an artist. But both of my parents at the time said, well, that's really nice. But now go get a job because yeah. you can't go to art school. You can't you can't do anything with that. So I didn't. I got a job and and I worked until I was 26. And the reason that I went to art school was that my younger sister, five years younger than me, it's almost like it was just a totally different generation and time, even just five years. See, I was just going to I was just going to do what they said okay. and not not cause any trouble. When she graduated from high school, she said, no, I'm going to go into fashion design. Oh. And that's what she did. OK, it destroyed me because I thought, wait a minute, that's that's as dumb as being a fine artist. Right. Well, when so, you say dumb, based on what you would think your parents would, based on what exactly would be put upon you, right? Mm -hmm. So um, she she actually went her first year. She was a business major, and then she switched mm -hmm. to fashion design, and and she was actually extremely ended up owning her own business in New York for twenty one years. She was mm -hmm. extremely successful at it. But when she made that decision, then it, it, I always say that was the best thing to happen to me because then I said, okay, I can do that too. You, you gave yourself the permission yeah. and I can now do a little pushback and say, well, yeah. things are different well, now. Well, now I'm going to do it. Yeah. So then, I, so then I went to art school 
It's like, you know, and, and moving and moving through time and and society and norms. And as everybody can just live their their best life or their true life out loud, it's an example then to people around us that, yeah, you know what I mean? You were she yeah. was an example that made you feel like you could make that choice. But now by you doing your authentic life, it's an example to other people, other women who might look to you and say, well, I want to follow her lead. Oh, yeah. I've had this conversation probably at every show. I have about three or four conversations where I I meet the soul of another woman. Mm. And, and we just have this incredible conversation. And I feel like they walk away with something really special. And I walk away with something really special that, that we shared with each other. Mm. And that can be enough reason right there to have gone to that show. Wow. It, I mean, we've got to make a living. We've got to support ourselves. But there are so many benefits we get from this life that goes so mm-hmm. much beyond the monetization and the, and the career type things. It's that connection mm-hmm. with other people. Yeah. And learning about ourselves, which fuels the work. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and these people, I mean, these people come to art shows because they do have a love of the arts, mm-hmm. you know, bless them. Right. They have a love of the arts and and they want to see everything that's out there. I mean, they're, they're little sponges and we have to feed them. Yeah. Oh, well, then, then they feed us. I mean, it's that symbiotic yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I talk, I talk, I do, I talk to everybody when I'm there. I mean, I talk to kids. I talk to dogs. <laughs> I talk to everybody. What do the dogs say back? <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are some of my best conversations. Okay. <laughs> wow. Because they let me do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, looking back on, you know, your experiences, um, I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm just curious what you might say. You know, do you have any regrets as to not doing what you're doing now sooner or did it really lay the, the groundwork or the foundation that needed to be done to get you to this point? You know, that I feel like that's the question that I'll never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly when when I started this series of work and it was so re- well received, really, from the beginning, pretty much just it was just boom mm-hmm. uh, out of the gate. Uh, certainly I did go, oh, my God, why did I wait? Why did I wait? Mm-hmm. What was I doing? What was I thinking? But my husband has assured me that it happened when I was ready. Right. It happened when it was time. Mm-hmm. And since I can't change the past, I'm going to go with that. You're going to go with that. And you know, the, <laughs> I'm going to go with that. The other part of it is that it's going to keep me young. Like yeah. I, when I think about, I, I turned 60 a year ago and I thought, oh my God, you know, I don't have time. I don't. But then I also thought, I don't have time for this either. I don't have time to sit around and think about whether or not I'm getting old. Mm-hmm. I have way too much to do. I'm I'm much too busy living my best life to worry about how old I am. Wow. Sounds like an Oprah, an Oprah episode right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is my hero. She's your hero. That's great. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> well, to finish up, do you have any advice to anyone out there? 
kind of like struggling with those same issues as you? Do you have any advice to them? You know, one thing that's been sort of stuck in my mind this year, my aha moment this year Mm -hmm. was that I'd want to say to any, any person, male or female, young or old, that the only one standing in your way of your dream is you. Wow. All right. Well, this has been a good talk. I really appreciate everything you had to share. It has been fun. It's been really fun. I really appreciate you, you know, just making this sort of platform available to other artists. I have enjoyed listening to the other podcasts that you've done. You and Will are great together. We've been having a good time with it. And, you know, it is. It's it's a it's a project that we are having to fit into a busy show life, but we are getting a lot out of it. And I feel like the conversations keep getting better and are growing and we're getting to know each other. And there are new values that come out of it every day. And I do feel like as a community out there, we are a strong community and having our voices heard and represented, however this spreads and however people come to this podcast Mm -hmm. and what their their Mm -hmm. point, if they're a collector or an artist or a show person, I think they're conversations that need to be heard to really see who we are as artists and people and business people and entrepreneurs and all that stuff. So, you know, it's really true. I I don't know that people uh, on the outside can really understand. I mean, I'm an artist and I've gone to these shows, but I really didn't understand until I was doing them sort of at this pace, Mm -hmm. how completely dedicated and self-motivated and self-disciplined and uh, that every artist at a show, I mean, when they give an award, I I really want to say this belongs to everybody. This belongs to anybody who is standing up and doing this with their lives. Mm -hmm. It belongs to everybody. Yeah, it's true. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cindy. You have a good one and happy, happy new year to you. Thank you. You too. Yes, it is upon us. It is. We'll see you at a show down the road here. That sounds great. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Great talk with Cindy Douglas. I had not met Cindy before. I was aware of her amazing work, but it was really cool to hear you sit down and talk to uh, such a talented artist. One of my favorite parts of that talk with her was when she admitted that she was at first unwilling to look for other choices. She just said, I'm going to make this choice. I'm going to make the choice to have the frame shop, even though she went into it feeling like it wasn't quite right. Right. And I love that she was able to share that and then to say that once she started stepping out of her comfort zone, that was when things really started happening for her. You know, to that point, uh, something that a lot of artists go through and I went through at the beginning of my career, when you're trying to hang on to a separate career or a separate job where you're just Mm. working a job and you're also trying to do this on the weekends, this Mm -hmm. is not a hobby that we do. This is not something that you can half-ass. So I totally responded to her element of that. I actually started out in a frame shop as well. It was I was just Mm. a worker bee, but it was... uh, You know, to learn all of the skills of handling art and how to frame it, how to treat it. Uh, It's an invaluable experience. So I really loved hearing about that. You know, one thing I would have asked her is, um, did she keep all that framing equipment? Do you know? 
Um, well, she did say that the framing is an important aspect that she says needs to be considered. And I did look at how well done her frames are. So I wonder if she does do her own frames, but I didn't ask her that directly. Yeah. No. The funny thing with my full circle story is that I went back when the frame shop went out of business, my, my art career was established and I went out and, and the frame shop that I used to work in, I bought a bunch of the equipment that ended up being sold at auction. So I have a lot of that stuff. I've got the old wall cutter that I used to use when I was in my twenties. It's uh, up on the wall in my wood shop. So kind of awesome. a, kind of a cool thing. Um, cool. You know, another thing that she said that rang true and, and we don't have to dissect every portion of this podcast, but is knowing when a piece of artwork is done. You have the benefit yeah. of being a, a glass blower where you don't have to work something to death. When Renee and you finish a piece, it's done. It has to be. It's not like you can go back and rework it. Nope. We can do a new one, but we aren't redoing the one that's in the oven. It's, if it's put away, it's done. Yeah. So she has to recognize the human that is inside of her painting. I have to go about it a different way where I have techniques that I use and stages of the piece that I implement. So when the last phase of it is done, the piece is done. I never go back in and rework a face or rework a, a, a person that's in, in my painting. I just, I have to do that or I'll drive myself insane. Mm -hmm. It's interesting yeah. how we all handle uh, our own businesses. And that's why we do what we do, Douglas. It's uh, to sit down and, and get inside the heads of our peers. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, we had such an amazing response at the end of last episode. It's been building all season, but we had so many people jump on to Apple and, and give us some great reviews. We're really touched and we really appreciate reading each and every one of them. And if you haven't done that and you are interested, we'd love it if you could jump on and, and give us a review. It does help our analytics. It helps spread us further uh, in the podcast promotional world. It really does. Uh, it, it does our heart good to jump on there and, and see those five-star reviews. And um, if you don't like the show, why are you still listening? It's right at the end. So don't don't <laughs> drop any deuces on us. We need those five stars. We need some help, people. So uh, log on to Apple or Stitcher or Spotify or um, whatever you, you use to listen to the podcast and uh, let us know what you think. And another announcement, when your episode dropped into your subscription box today, you might have noticed we have a new look, a new album mm. art designed by Dylan Straczynski. I love the album art, and uh, I love how much he hated the old one. <laughs> inspired <laughs> to uh, to help us out. He's like, you guys got to get rid of that 80s horror slasher logo right now. So uh, it, it definitely helps us uh, with our presence on uh, all of the different platforms. So thanks so much, Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. And such a great response, overwhelming response to what you did. And we are so grateful for getting involved. In addition to that, we have some announcements. Uh, his film, The Light we make it is being shown at two new festivals yeah this is really exciting he's got uh the first festival is the red dirt film festival in stillwater oklahoma and um the other one's all the way up north our good friends from the north there in toronto the geek fest mm -hmm. toronto in toronto ontario 
So that's really great news. That's exciting. It's getting exposure like that, and it's being seen and played. And and uh, we're right. going to try and keep uh, putting out announcements about it. So as soon as we can all watch it, we can see the great film. You can check things out online at lifewemakedoc.com. That's a D-O-C, lifewemakedoc.com for all of the different festival information. If you're in Oklahoma or Ontario, uh, go out and see it. Get your mask on. Go get out and uh, get, get some culture. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening this week and there's a lot of us heading down to florida doing shows be safe out there make some money keep it between the ditches folks we'll see you next week this podcast is brought to you by the national association of independent artists the website is naiaartists.org also sponsored by zapplication that's zapplication.org and while you're at it check out will's website at willarmstrongart.com and my website at sigwithglass.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and be notified when we release new episodes. 